You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Jerry Parker, Moritz Siebert, and I, Niels Kassel-Larsen, are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, where we continue our journey into the world of rules-based investing and share our experiences with you each week, hoping that you can find a few golden nuggets to implement in your own investment journey. Before we get into it, let me give a big, big shout out to our producer, Dimitri, for uh, recovering the uh, the recording from last week, um, where we had a technical problem that led us to uh, lose the audio, uh, so to speak, at least the live audio. And then, uh, but we luckily had a backup of it, and uh, Dimitri very successfully managed to bring it out to you guys um, a couple of days later. So thanks for that. Jerry, Moritz, um, we're recording this at a slightly different time than usual. So it's good evening to you, Moritz, and good afternoon to you, Jerry. Good afternoon. Yes, good afternoon. Feel wide yeah. awake. Almost four o'clock, so I feel great. Uh, not chucking coffee like I usually do. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I have to say I feel a little bit jet lagged after my 11-hour flight yesterday over here to Florida, but it's uh, nice to be here. And of course, if you're tuning in for the first time, just uh, want to say welcome. We love that you're here and we'll do our very best to uh, provide some value and perhaps even some entertainment for the next hour, hour and a half. Um, let's jump into uh, this week's uh, events. Uh, of course, as, as, as it has been the case for a while now, uh, you know, the week had a, a continuation of the bullish tone in equities, um, you know, very firmly intact. Um, so, of course, that's going to be uh, quite influential on this week's performance of CTAs, no doubt. Um, and, of course, this was very much related to the signing of this U.S.-China trade deal. Um, and we did see some quite healthy moves in the markets. We can talk about that in a second. But for me, what, what actually stood out this week was not really specifically related to uh, to uh, to the markets in terms of news, um, but I think it's something that will um, will affect uh, most of us, if not all of us. And that was when on Friday Google came out and said that Chrome browser would phase out the use of cross website cookies, which have underpinned digital advertising for 25 years. Um, I know other browsers have done it, um, but I think this is. This is quite major because these cookies tend to follow you uh, for 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 weeks or months. Um, certainly, in my personal case, maybe perhaps that uh, fitness club membership that I checked out a few months ago <laughs> will stop showing up in my ad feed. You never know; you can always hope. Um, and then the other the other thing I wanted to say before um, jumping into it, um, and this is actually something that George, uh, our good friend George, uh, brought to my attention this week. In his weekly update, uh, it was just a great quote from Howard Marks, who, of course, came out with one of his memos. I think it was this week he uh, came out with it. Um, and and the quote goes like this. You can't tell the quality of a decision from the outcome. The success of your decision will be heavily influenced by A, relevant information you may lack, or B, luck or randomness. Well-thought-out decision may fail. Poor decisions may succeed. While it might seem counterintuitive, the best decision maker isn't necessarily the person with the most success, but rather the one with the best process. 
I think we have all touched on this uh, during our conversations, uh, the importance of process uh, over outcome. So, so uh, I appreciate George uh, reminding me uh, of this. Um, other than that, Moritz, how was your week? Good. Always fun to read those Howard Marks memos. I'm a big fan. Uh, what he just said is, uh, I guess, uh, something that we'd all sign up for, uh, process over outcome. But the week, um, to answer your question, has been fairly good, a uh, bit more than a percent up. So I'm close to 3% up for the month and therefore also for the year. It's been a good start to the year. And um, the portfolio is mostly positioned on the long side. I just took a few notes here. I mean, the last week was... Uh, really driven by the longs in, in the S&P. Uh, and platinum, above all palladium, palladium made a, a massive move uh, higher, uh, but also in LIBOR, LIBOR and COCO, uh, had a couple of good shorts on. Uh, the most significant one is uh, natural gas. Natural gas is uh, continuing to move lower. The Brazilian real. Um, so anyway, it's... Um, it's been good. I am getting a bit closer again to my uh, latest equity high, which I recorded last year at the end of August before we had the collapse in bond prices that we've discussed on that show. Um, so it's about, you know, six, seven, yeah, about six, six months ago. Um, and uh, it would be so nice to, uh, to get back to new highs in January. Yeah, that would be very nice. Um... It's funny, I always feel that uh, as we all go to Florida, more specifically to Miami, where we'll see each other next week for the uh, you know, the week of the conferences, um, and I often think back of that they, uh, during these conferences, uh, CTAs tend to do very well, but then as soon as the conferences are over, we kind of are usually in for some kind of correction or shock. I just hope that's not the case Oops. this year. <laughs> it would be nice if the industry uh, came back and made a new all-time high, even though I agree uh, quite a few did that uh, at the end of August, uh, so that's not that far away. Uh, this week for us, also pretty solid, uh, like you, Moritz, um, of, you know, equities, of, of course, the most uh, important uh, performance contributor, uh, followed by a bit of profits in currencies. Um, we, we did actually even get some help from fixed income this week, not a lot, but a little, uh, as well as meats and grains and metals. Uh, for us, the only two sectors that were lacking behind were the energies uh, and the softs, despite, you know, pretty inspirational efforts by net gas and cocoa in those two sectors, but not enough to to uh, produce profits for those sectors. But the week overall, uh, good. The, the year so far, fine. And um, yeah, I just can't. I just can't help thinking back uh, on that particular Bloomberg article that came out exactly a, about a year ago, uh, early February. That was really kind of the doomsday of trend following, and um, you know the following twelve months so far has been um, pretty good. So um, I hope I'm w still waiting for the follow-up article um, uh, on that one. It won't be coming. <laughs> no, I think you're right. Um, but Jerry. Um, how how's your week? I mean, uh, obviously, equities um, have been center uh, in in sort of traditional CTA portfolios, but single stocks might be different. Oh, I hope so. Single stocks need to be different, and uh, I try on purpose to not be correlated with the S and P with my single stocks portfolio. So I'm sure I underperformed. Um, 
but uh, you know, I had some uh, cra- I have some crazy stocks in there, and they're all doing different things. And uh, I've had Tesla for a while, and that's I keep forgetting to mention it, but that's really been you know skyrocketing and going crazy. And uh, it's uh, crazy, but it's a name everyone knows, and it's very liquid. So Tesla had a little tiny sell off, you know, and but it's just been a, a moonshot almost uh, for a past month or two. So, uh, but I think uh, the the story is, the big story is commodities still look good. The longs look good. Plat, platinum kind of uh, maybe took over the lead in the precious metals. That's uh, interesting. And it uh, started very slow after gold and silver, or gold certainly made a big, huge move. Uh, turned into a huge, uh, pretty nice loss, and now it's just screamed higher and gotten a little bit stronger than gold probably and then of course palladium it's the crazy trade and that's the one we should talk about because it's the big uh, outlier so far that i for the past year or so i guess and um, i've got i uh, like to see in my different uh, sectors some longs and shorts so i've got some long wheat um, the uh, french wheat and the chicago wheat and short short um, minneapolis wheat and uh, but the bean oil still looks strong, and and then all the other markets you guys mentioned, I <clears throat> I concur. The um, fun to have some uh, lo- uptrends in the Russian ruble, Mexican peso, Israel, and then short. Uh, and I guess and I guess China kind of broke is breaking out, broke out to the upside as well. Um, Dollar China to the downside, and then uh, yen to the downside. So it's a lot of good stuff happening, and risk is not getting too one-sided. And um, of course, all these things can turn around pretty quickly and turn into losing trades. These, but it's a good sign that the commodities are, you know, which is a material part of most CTA's portfolios because they're so uncorrelated. And uh, at least, at least, especially in my portfolio, I'm probably 35, 40 percent commodities. Yeah, that's great. And also, I mean, it's been one of those uh, areas where it's been difficult to differentiate uh, in the last few years because the financials have been so dominantly. We've had pretty strong moves uh, for periods of time in equities, the same in bonds. Uh, currencies, of course, has been kind of a non-event for the last uh, quite a while, at least sort of the, the, the broader uh, or the sort of the euro-dollar type uh, currency crosses. But but you're, you're right. I mean, uh, just looking at the year-to-date performance, I mean, palladium up uh, almost 18%. We've got cocoa up 10% for the for the year. Uh, you know, sugar doing pretty well, platinum. And then on the downside, some pretty decent moves as well. Coffee down almost 14%, uh, nat gas almost down 8%, uh, almost down 9%. So uh, nice to see that we're getting some... Um, movements in one of those uh, areas where i think uh, you know we as 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 an industry really c- can add some value because a lot of investors find it hard to uh, implement these markets in their portfolio so doing it through a um, a cta or trend following strategy is is, is not a bad thing uh, in my you opinion know, yeah you know i was thinking today I've, I've brought this topic up many many times on the podcast and in the tweets but there is no way to get these markets in your portfolio um, you know, unless you're using trend following or a systematic approach, you can't get them in. You can't add them because, uh, you know, in the popular press, they'll say, well, here's what happens when you add gold, you know, and implicitly what they're saying or explicitly is that uh, this is based on a buy and hold. You know, the stocks are based on buy and hold. The bonds are based on a buy and hold. And they go up and they 
add value, 60-40. Then you can add stock. You can add gold as well, or most of the time you can add gold, depending upon when they uh, evaluate the historical performance. And, uh, but the cocoa and the uh, grains and, it, <clears throat> and all that, you can't get that in your portfolio because it doesn't go up over time. So it's like I was... Uh, I sort of uh, said, you know, you know, it's it makes me kind of like I don't know how to like uh, word this alpha. You know, is it do, does trend following need to be you know add alpha? Does it is alpha fit in? I mean, you know, if, if trend following just made money, you know, and you were able to dramatically reduce your risk because these markets, these commodities that you put in there, and the currencies as well, they made money overall, and by you know, it's obviously going to give you less risk. Um, that's pretty, that's a lot of alpha there, especially as compared to uh, long only S&P. Yeah, and, and I was just going to say, I mean, I think the last time commodities were, um, you know, uh, in the focus for many investors, especially institutional investors, was quite a, at least to, to me, it was quite a while ago when there was a lot of uh, hoo-ha uh, around the, the launch of uh, Jim Rogers' uh, commodity index. Unfortunately, as I think it was pretty much launched at the high and, and these indices, long only indices, have been doing nothing but going down. So I think people have had uh, maybe a bad experience if they try to implement these, uh, you know, from the long only side. I think a lot of commodity cycles, by the way, when I just look at charts, I think on a, say, 30-35 year cycle, I think they spend most of the time going down, interestingly enough, but they have these huge rallies um, in between. And so uh, so they are, I think they're really important to have uh, as part of a portfolio for sure. Well, commodities are not a long-only product, as we know. We, we may say that no asset is a long-only product, not even the equities, even though we're very often compared to those uh, long-only buy and hold equity, S&P 500 type of strategies. But the commodities for sure, no, that's that's a trading asset. It's it's not something to just hold on to. Yeah. And then stocks, once again, it depends up when when you do your analysis. You know, in two thousand eight stocks were not buying were not a buy and hold long asset either. It was the lost decade. And so now I guess they are. So the next time we have fifty, sixty percent drawdown, maybe they go back to not being one so much. So it's back and forth. So I'm making fun of it because I don't really believe that um, you know, if you take risk seriously that, uh, and as we've talked about over the past year or so, the number of countries that now have fallen off that list of they make money over time. You guys are the ones brought, you know, who, who know it better than me, Italy and some of the other countries over, over in Europe, they no longer are on the list or maybe they're back on it, you know, due to recent performance. But uh, I think it's just kind of humorous that uh, approaching the markets, even, uh, the wonderful stock market is something that's just buy and hold and put it away and store it away and it's going to go up over time is not what risk managers, it's not how they should be thinking. Agreed. Sure. Yeah. And I, I mean, to, to, to boil it down, I think our, our deep belief is that no market should be really traded as a long only market. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you know, as long as your time horizon is, is long enough, you're going to see, uh, opportunities both on the long side but but surely also on the short side you know one of the things that i just uh, because uh, jerry mentioned tesla and i've mentioned palladium it's it's actually an example i just want to make the point because we've mentioned that on that show before that you know markets very often tend to become more volatile when they you know have their 
you know, they make those big moves higher. And, you know, we speak about the vault controlling and all that stuff, but, you know, Palladium is a case in point where it's been, you know, having a certain average true range. I can't tell you exactly what that number is, but just by looking at the chart, that average true range is now uh, substantially higher than it used to be when I entered my position originally, and I have it on for quite some time uh, because it's been in such a nice uptrend. And so this would have been an occasion where, you know, those vault controlling people would probably have taken profits because they would have reduced their position as Palladium has moved higher since probably November. And, uh, and I didn't, uh, which means I'm now sitting on a good paper profit, but obviously also with some open risk on. Yeah, and uh, taking small profits. And uh, this is a great example. It's why we need to really hammer on this when we, we get these outliers. It's not a huge outlier. I mean, it's not the biggest one I've ever seen, of course, and it may crash. But uh, it's, I'm going to bring this up in a couple of tweets I made this week because it's definitely what we're all waiting for. And when it happens, it's probably good to hear our viewpoints on this. But, I mean, it's a monster profit since September of 18. I'm looking at the chart out of the corner of my eye. October 18, it's sort of made a new high there after being at a low in the summer. And so um, we didn't have to take a small loss. We didn't take our 50 bips there or whatever we're, we're risking. And a major sell-off at uh, you know April of 19, later in the summer, back in the fall. So, whoa, look at all that risk. Really? I mean, really? Because the risk was back in September of 18 when I was worried about losing my 50 basis points. And so if you're not going to be bold and strong and holding onto the profits and letting this thing maximize and scare you to death, which is sort of the definition of trend following, and look at it as a bet that you are definitely going to win, more than likely, you're definitely going to win this one. Boy, what are you going to, how are you going to, what other kind of trade are you going to let uh, go and, and make you a lot of money? Exactly. Well, speaking about those tweets, Jerry, that you uh, just uh, flagged there, why don't we uh, go straight into that, see what was happening, what uh, topics uh, was raised in uh, the FinTweet uh, world this week, and, and let's debate some of those. And then we've got quite a few questions because, of course, last week we didn't take, uh, we didn't do them, so uh, there's a, a few lined up as well. So uh, let's get to it. Okay, good. I've just got a few this week, but uh, they're, they're all good. And um, this uh, tweet was, you know, it's been a couple of weeks, I think, since we were able, since we missed last week with, uh, you'd think I'd have more saved up, but I haven't done a very good job in the past two weeks, I guess. So, but this was the most uh, popular tweet I've had in a while, certainly over the, certainly this year. Um, oh, and I had to pull this out of a, some paper that had nothing to do with trend following. You know, I just pulled it out and crafted it <laughs> and uh, made it into something that uh, I would like. And it was, the quote is, of our most costly mistakes over the years, almost all have been sell decisions. The mistake in virtually every instance has been selling too soon. And people love that because everyone identifies with it, whether you're fundamental value or technical or trend. So, yeah, I mean, that's just the human condition, you know, it's, uh, we're fearful with our loss, with our uh, winners, which we should be hopeful with the winners, and we're hopeful that the losers will come back, and we should be fearful that they're going to get larger. Um, and I expanded it 
I had a little comment here that said value and fundamental sell rules can't outperform trend sell rules. I don't remember what I meant by that, but I'm pretty sure that's kind of true, mostly at least because uh, trend sell rules, trend following systematic sell rules, uh, probably are more objective and are going to be followed every single time, right? Aren't they? And then value and fundamental are probably less uh, objective and probably can be mixed and matched some. But I don't think that, uh, I think it's one of the issues that we've read about where people say, well, value and fundamental doesn't really um, work that well. And I think that's the reason and those rules are not ever going to match a uh, systematic uh, set of rules that's going to be researched and back-tested over 30, 40, 50 years on lots of different markets. What are your thoughts, Moritz? Not much to say there. I'm still and continue to struggle with, you know, value and, and some of those fundamental definitions. I think they're, they're much less clear to me than than our trend-following type of trading. Um, I think, you know, there's, I mean, we could be accused of, you know, using trend following in a different way. And I know you, Niels, are done. You trade, you know, you identify trades in a different way than probably Jerry and I do. But over the long run, it's pretty much a coherent picture that, you know, identifies both the three of us as trend following traders. But with, um, with fundamental, I mean, people look at enterprise value, they look at PE, they look at price to book, they look at price to sales, they look at all sorts of fundamental stuff. It's um, it's much more opaque to me, so I, I I have more difficulty finding access to those type of strategies. I just think in general, I think the uh, the more uh, I look at different things, not just necessarily trading, but um, you know, certainly if you look at people who are generally successful, I think a lot of them, um, you know, have you know have lived with a, an incredible amount of, of discipline and focus in 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 trying to achieve what they wanted to achieve, and and I think those are the key, uh, you know, stepping stones to to success. And 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 um, since we have all this evidence uh, from from our world that this really works, I mean, there um, as as I've referred to uh, many times I mean I have not yet seen a, a white paper that that uh, you know argues that uh, you know adding trend following to a traditional portfolio uh, can't improve the the, the risk adjusted returns um, and I think in general also you know just from our personal lives I mean if there are things that needs to uh, to uh, be managed well uh, you know whether it's a budget or, or whatever it might be I mean following certain principles or certain rules tends to be the way we get things done and so i still find it just uh, incredible that um, a lot of people um you know uh, continue to find excuses for for not approaching financial markets uh, this way uh, or at least for a part of their portfolio now of course value can be system systematized so i mean you can you can have rules-based, uh, you know, uh, strategies implemented in 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 other things, but uh, and 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 if we look at the kind of the top fifty um, hedge funds, if we kind of take our world uh, away from that, but just look at what's you know referred to as hedge funds, I think we'll find that most of them uh, are are rules-based or quant-based, um, and uh, and uh, so yeah, I mean. Um, Human nature, unfortunately, makes it difficult sometimes to embrace these things, even though 
there's plenty of evidence um and it's, so it's not really it's, uh, it's not really an opinion it's it's just the truth i guess so i followed up that uh, tweet by saying uh by ta tagging onto it uh, selling down a position with a big profit palladium due to elevated volatility is also a mistake of selling too soon those types of risk management rules create profit mismanagement Yes, I'll have to throw, you know, always put in a little plug for being anti-fall targeting. And I should be very happy. I mean, Palladium is is very uh, small market. It's kind of illiquid and uh, probably the big billion dollar CTAs who like to come in there and um, make make big waves and sell when the vol gets high. They will just crush this market. If So hopefully they're not in there. And so it's a good market for small managers like me and Probably a lot of our listeners and Palladium is perfectly fine, but um, not if you're managing billions and billions, probably. So I probably shouldn't speak too soon that uh, they won't do that, but hopefully they won't. Um, but I think the Palladium trade is interesting in that it's a good example that of, um, you know, one of the reasons that I don't like to um, focus on, you know, this, this sort of idea, I mean, I'm sure it's kind of, probably true, but I don't want to like admit that it's that true, this idea that uh, exits are more important than than uh, entries, because, you know, I just, this trade is so large, it's going to dominate some people's performance. Uh, these outliers always do. It's going to, could make your, break your year, your month, or whatever, and um, just getting it in your head that you've got to figure this out. You know, I've got to get this exit right. There is no getting this exit right. You know, no one can predict. No one knows when it's going to go down. It could, it's already had a couple of <clears throat> nice sell-offs and only to go back to all time, you know, to highs. So, you know, multiple entries, multiple exits. Uh, there's no way to know or predict. There's no such thing as, um, you know, making this exit so important because it's only in hindsight that you'll know that. And, um, I think it's just an illusion to think that because these exits can have such a material impact upon performance and short, shorter term performance, especially that you can sort of fall in love with them and say, wow, I really figured this thing out. You know, I know exactly how to handle these. No, you don't. You don't know how to handle anything. History is not that great of a guide, especially if you're just looking at uh, the big trends. I mean, there's just not that there's not enough of them. You don't have. By definition, you don't have a good sample size for trends that look like palladium. So, you know, get out of, you know, 25% here, then wait a while, get out of another 25% and et cetera, et cetera. But um, I just don't like this whole idea that I'm going to be impressed and be really intense on my exits when it's just all kind of random. Look, I mean, look at that palladium chart. I mean, I've just hypothesized, I'm, I'm sure how exactly those uh, vault targeting funds do it, but I'm looking at the chart right now. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a, you know, probability that they took off positions uh, in November, December time. Then, you know, just looking at the chart, the volatility started to, uh, to become larger. And, uh, and, and how would you feel now? I mean, now the market is another 15% higher. Um, but, you know, if you just, you know, had, you know, stayed with your trend, moved your stop higher, you know, you, you know, it's but, a but good, good thing to have. Sure, but this is interesting, uh, Mort. I mean, I, I, I don't want to defend vault targeting because I, I don't, 
yeah, I mean, we we do adjust positions on our side, but I wouldn't call it vol targeting. We don't have a target for vol. So if that's the definition, uh, then you know we don't fall under that definition. But on the other hand, we we don't just sit with the same position size as we did when we got in. Um, you know, because there are, you know, we look at risk uh, on a on a on a portfolio level, and we want to uh, control that within certain limits. So we may have different approaches there. But I mean, I think it's fine to 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 use Palladium as a good example of of you know, if you could hang in there, you would have made a lot of money for sure. But but I think also in fairness to the discussion, I think we also obviously have to recognize that sometimes, uh, you know, when you have a big spike in a market and, and, and some people take part of the profit out, which, you know, then very often that actually turns out to be a good thing. So, I mean, it's hard to just take one example and say, yeah, I mean, how do you feel about it now? I mean, sure, maybe this time it it would have worked. But, um, you know, there are obviously all the times where market trends uh, change dramatically uh, or reverse dramatically. And of course, in those situations, uh, it, it, it could work. Frankly, to me, I don't think it's a question of good or bad. Uh, and I actually enjoy the fact that, that people do it differently because if, if, if some people want to, to, to just buy, buy and hold, so to speak, or I don't mean buy and hold, but get into the trade and stay with it for long. Other people want to trade around it. I mean, it just adds liquidity to the markets, I guess. Well, I'm sure, I can be accused of making this a sample size one, but just, you know, <laughs> focusing on Palladium and just in the, you know, the past couple of months. But um, I do have more than sample size one on that. You know, I, I, I did, for a test, overlay my portfolio with, you know, vault targeting. And I may use a different or incorrect way of vault targeting, but what I can tell you is that in my case, it increased my average loss and the vault targeting overlay did not produce uh, better risk-adjusted returns for me. Oh, I agree with that. I, I, I'm not taking the side of saying that it's better. I, I have no evidence for that and uh, it, it probably isn't. And, and, and I, think, I agree with you. I yeah. mean, there, may be, there may be many, many examples where, you know, uh, taking the profit sooner you know with the benefit of hindsight was the right thing yeah. to do but we don't have that hindsight but 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 on to your point moritz and i think this is important i get the feeling and and it's just a feeling because frankly we don't know necessarily what uh, what what other people are doing but i get the feeling that a lot of the largest uh, firms probably are using some level of vault targeting if we just define it broadly mm -hmm. and there is no at least in my mind, there is no doubt that performance in the last decade hasn't been very strong. So, based on that very simple logic, could this be because they are doing suddenly vault targeting? And and we all know that as you get bigger and you have more to lose, very often you become more careful and you lower your risk, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, so I, I actually don't disagree at all that vault targeting performance-wise may not add anything. On the contrary, could detract from stuff. Um, but of course, I just want to to the listeners to to be aware of that. If we just look at a single uh, market situation, of course, sometimes it's a good thing and sometimes it's a bad thing. But it just shows you that there is no wrong or right because none of us know what the future is going to bring. I mean, at the end of the day, we, the three of us, we all have different ways of managing the risk, right? I mean, as you, uh, I think it's Jerry who sometimes says, well, if you have a monster profit, there's nothing wrong to take a little bit off the table. Sure. I mean, that's another way of doing things. So I don't think that there is anything 
um, you know, that, that ha- by law you have to do it this way. And I think that's what's great about trend following. You can interpret it in, in different ways, I- except there are certain key principles that we all adhere to. Oh, I don't, I don't think we do. I think, um, <clears throat> and I've already you know, brought it up, and that is taking small profits. So I think this is uh, kind of a way to take small profits and to, uh, con- uh, to look at something concrete that uh, we're, uh, the most popular tweet was, you know, I've sold too soon. And so for whatever reason, you know, you, oh, it's just, and I don't agree that uh, somehow if you just call it money management or risk control, fall targeting risk control money management, then, oh, well, then you're above reproach. I can't criticize that. If you throw that in there, well, it can't be criticized. And I'm just saying, no, it's it's a bet. And we bet uh, 50 bips back in September of 18. And it was no risk necessarily involved in the trade once it became a profit. Certainly not now. There was some uncomfortable volatility. And it just goes to show you that, um, yeah, you're going to feel uncomfortable. You should feel uncomfortable if you have a systematic approach that is uh, necessarily long-term. We've talked about how kind of CTAs had to expand their look-back periods, and um, it's a bummer. When you expand them and you make the exits uh, longer term, you know, you're going to have more volatility. Oops, no, I found a loophole. Now let's just use this fall targeting. There's no downside to that. Yeah, it's a little bit of downside, you know. You have to trade larger. Your average profit is going to be smaller. And this is a c- concrete example about how I'm going to make more money on pl- palladium than if I would have all targeted. But I'm also going to have a bigger drawdown. So you have bigger risk, Jerry. I'm like, no, not really. I mean, I'm playing with this mega profit and uh, my risk was the 50 bips I was or but didn't end up losing in 2018. Not that I want to, you know, find myself on the side of defending vault targeting. I don't, but but I will say that <laughs> I will say that uh, vault targeting has two sides to it. Um, first of all, it it may it certainly may mean uh, reducing positions uh, that are winning and and getting out too early of some of it, and and I don't agree with that per se. But the flip side of that is it also means taking on more risk at times, right? So when volatility goes down, they'll they'll add back volatility, which could be you know a good thing. Which if if you have a, a, a you know buy and and don't change your position size, you wouldn't do that. But as I said, I don't want to be on the side of defending vol targeting because we don't do it, and I don't think any of us do it. Um, but it's a very, it's a, obviously a, a point that always brings out the best of us when we discuss we, it. We are the podcast for all targeting, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> that, 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 that's become very clear. But, you know, I mean, um, I guess we'll, we'll have to, uh, to call it quits on that topic for today. But, you know, you, you may be in a losing position. And, you know, to, uh, to use Jerry's example, you open the position and you have not yet hit your 50, 50 bips that you've risked. You're, you're like at a 25 bips loss. And the average true range of that market has declined and the vol has declined. And you're going to size up your position now and therefore increase your risk. That is something I would never do. Really not keen uh, on doing but, that. But, but at you're all. making, I have, to, I have to interrupt you here, Moritz, because I think you're, 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 you're making an assumption that I don't know is true. And that is that vault targeting funds use stops like traditional breakout systems. And I'm not sure they do. Yeah. I think they manage the risk in a different way and therefore we can't say necessarily that uh, that they will end up taking on more risk per se uh, i just want to throw that in there before we 
before we all send off the court for t talking too much about vault targeting. Well, well fair enough. They would still be at a loss with that position. Sure. You know, given compared to where they opened it, it has made a, a paper loss for now. And they're now increasing their size, whether they have a stop or not. They could be. I'm just saying that that's probably more to the risk management side than, than just... Because I don't know the vault targeting if, you know, again, we, I think we have a very loose uh, definition of this, but I don't know that they are, uh, you know, doubling down on risk and doing all the things that trend following doesn't do. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm sure they're not really doing that. But anyways, I don't know uh, for sure. Okay. Yeah. Anyways, that was great. That was <laughs> one topic, Jerry, and we're already uh, running at a high pace here, energy-wise. <laughs> well, I'm going to let you have your way, but I'm certainly not finished, and so we'll come back to this at a later time. <laughs> trust me. <laughs> trust me. Trust me. Sure. It's, the, it's a plague. I'll have to find someone to come on that show that uh, when we do that, that, that really does vault targeting, because we don't, we don't. Oh, that would be fun. Yeah. Oh, that should be our next guest for sure. Um, they're loath to kind of uh, defend it or talk much about it. Uh, yeah, try to draw them out and uh, can't. Hard to do. No, they don't really want to talk about it. But uh, just this morning, I read another article from uh, Morgan Housel, who I like to quote a lot and read a lot about. And uh, I just uh, posted it this morning. I like this article. I brought out a few um, of the, of the um, <clears throat> parts of it in, on Twitter. It's about risk is what you don't see. The riskiest stuff is always what you don't see coming. It's complicated, which is why we're not great at it, at dealing with it. How risky something is depends on whether its target is prepared for it. We should acknowledge that what we can't see, what we aren't talking about and aren't prepared for will likely be more consequential than all the known risks combined. Risk is what you don't see. And then I, um, I just, Encourage people to keep taking those small losses, and when uh, we can't predict, you know, the good stuff or the bad stuff that's going to occur. And he goes on to mention uh, diversification and uh, allocation, and um, I should have uh, put that in there with my first comments as well. It's not just taking small losses; that is what we do to defend ourselves uh, for risk. It's also uh, the diversification and the longs and the shorts um, that uh, the CTAs tend to emphasize lots of different markets, longs and shorts, the small losses, and it's, I think it's very uh, reasonable to assume that we're doing a really good job as well as any type of strategy when it comes to um, doing all we can to prepare for things we can't see and uh, can't anticipate. Um, it reminded me a little bit of uh, the critique that um, the long-only crowd on Twitter likes to uh, make fun of like something like uh, Golden Cross, you know, trend following every time the S&P goes below the 50-day the, the moving average goes below the 200-day moving average, it signals a golden a death cross and you should get out and they write these articles every time it happens and it never works and uh, you get criticized, look at all the money that you would make by ignoring that or maybe you should go long uh, on this death cross and I think that that's another kind of subset of issues of where um, these things that we do, you take the small losses, you trade the commodities and the currencies, and you do short trades, they just are not working. You know, look at the S&P. It's making so much more money. You don't have to take the small losses. You don't have to diversify. 
this is so frustrating. I think that's a part of dealing with unknowns and uncertainty is we lose our confidence and our commitment to those things sometimes when they don't work as often as we need them to and the rest of the world is not using them and they're making fun of us. I think that's a super important and really uh, interesting uh, topic that um, that Morgan Housel wrote about and that you picked up because I think that's actually something that is often lost uh, in the debate. I think a lot of people, uh, when they come and they do their due diligence and they do their ongoing monitoring, et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, a lot of the, the, the risk metrics that they apply, um, you know, and they, they talk about is uh, things that somehow you can, you know, you think you can measure and you, we have all these all these uh, fancy um, tools and, 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 and names for it. But I think you're right that the, the risk that we just can't imagine um, is, is much more important. And, and there, again, going back to what I said earlier, that makes me even more perplexed that fewer, so few people have embraced trend following because that strategy has truly had a lot of unknown risks that we have had to deal with in the last 50 years and we've dealt with it pretty well uh i would say so um so if again if you want something in your portfolio because it's adaptive uh right it reacts it's not just sitting there watching things go pear-shaped um so because it is adaptive i think it's it's just one of those uh players you need on your team that will be uh you know very good at defense uh even for an unknown um play so to speak i agree i mean history has shown us that you know in the financial markets it it normally is a surprise ingredient that gets the financial markets pot to boil over it's something that nobody anticipated everybody's talking about a different thing and then something else some curveball comes around the corner that nobody could see and that gets the stuff to topple over and um you know we as as trend following traders we may not be there right at that point in time when it tips we may have the wrong position on we may still be long equities and equities go down right so there is no hedge as we've said before but if that surprise ingredient that gets the pot to pull over really you know leads to longer term trends in all sorts of markets and you know if it is a severe crisis then normally we will have trends in not just one market but you know all sorts of asset classes will be affected commodities and bonds and equities and currencies then you know, sooner or later, we will get onto those trends and uh, we will enjoy that volatility from a trading perspective with our program. So those are the times when when we have uh, very good odds of, uh, of shining. And it's just, uh, you know, we just tend to, tend to be skeptical. And uh, I think I've missed so many opportunities in uh, investing outside of trend following where I was just too skeptical. And uh, I think... Uh, we're skeptical of the stocks going higher. Um, we're skeptical of negative interest rates. They can't go any lower uh, as, as, uh, as uh, humans. And then yet the trend following systems just stay long and they ignore the value and the fundamentals or the, this has never happened before. It can't continue to happen. Uh, rates have got to go higher. And yet uh, the approach is just always looking uh, pretty darn good compared to conventional wisdom. Mm. Yeah, indeed. What else happened in uh, in your Twitter feed this week, Jerry? Well, I, it's not a lot going on. Uh, there was one uh, 
article I read in the Financial Times. It talked about uh, the, the quant winter. Uh, the performance has been pretty terrible for two years now. This is indeed a quant winter, but two-year winters just happen. We don't know how to predict them or when they end, but we know they occur, um, which, you know, we're sort of uh, in the same boat sometimes where these uh, the lack of trend following and the big trends and uh, there should be a reason for this and we want to make a proclamation that it's no longer going to work anymore but a lot of the styles uh, go in and out of favor and it's it's just impossible to predict it just sort of happens and then uh, when they come back into favor we have to just still be doing our trades and doing our system and not having given up on it using good money management to maybe to trade smaller and uh, preserve our capital, but we just got to keep doing the same thing over and over. And so it's just interesting to see other sectors and other groups of traders in different styles, you know, get hit with the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I think we desperately need uh, patience in, in our industry, in many things. I mean, not just in our industry, but the way performance is viewed when you uh, trade, uh, you know, 50 plus markets, yet you're being measured uh, on monthly, quarterly, even yearly performance. It just doesn't make any sense uh, at all. Um, neither does it for so many uh, other strategies, of course. Uh, it, it truly is, you know, 10, 20, 30 year horizons that we need to um, we need to uh, keep telling investors that that's what they need to uh, to uh, have in mind and stick to uh, when they create their portfolios um, but that's just uh, one of those other human biases that are really difficult for them to um, or for all of us to maybe um, um, live up to how we I, I tweeted the same article and uh, it included some some quotes for I um by Cliff Asnes, uh, who we like and who we've quoted before, but so I thought this is a nice article to uh, to tweet about, and then I stepped back and and thought, well, I really disagree with that thing with that thing because I don't think that we're in a quant winter. I mean, are you? I, I'm I'm not in a quant winter. Is Renaissance in a quant winter? Is D. E. Shaw, Two Sigma, and all those other quant firms are they in a winter? I mean, the, the last time I looked, they're making new highs. And I'm observing and watching and following a lot of systematic trading houses who are not necessarily trend-following traders. They trade other things, but in a quant way. They're pure, hardcore quants. And they're making new highs. So they're, it's all spring and summer for them. So who's to say that the quant industry is in a winter, sleepy phase? I, I don't see this. I mean, it's, it's true when you say... Uh, well, let's look at the, the value fund or some of the AQR funds, which had problems in the past couple of years, and, and those problems ha have been reported about. But this is not the quant world. This is one small excerpt, one small subset of quant investing. And they picked this, and as usual, they compared it to the S&P 500, because that's what you have to compare things. I mean, there, there are quotes in this article saying, well, uh, I don't know whether it's, you know, D. Shaw or 2 Sigma saying, and it only made 14%. <laughs> I mean, figure that. It only made 14% because the S&P made 28 or 29 or whatever the number was, right? So, uh, and it said something like, you know, although um, disappointing in relative terms, it still had a positive year. It's like, well, <laughs> it's ridiculous. So I just want to say that... Um, these articles, they tend to focus on the strategies which are in the public light, which are in the spotlight, and they think 
that's quant and they don't look to the left and to the right and i think there's so much war uh and 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 those strategies are not in a winter phase and up to- on top of that more as, as as we've talked about often uh, and that is that uh, these articles tend to uh, to highlight uh, things that uh, may not be working uh you know uh, in a negative headlines uh, certainly sell better than positive headlines and as you rightly said that probably won't be a follow up to the article about CTA's uh you know uh, terrible situation in February of last year and uh, you know this is uh, th- I think that's uh, the extinction the extinction moment yeah exactly and it's you know they try to they don't really know what they're writing and they want to compare um, you know a industry like hedge uh, funds or CTAs or quants and they who have one of their characteristics is complete freedom almost complete freedom you know so by definition, everyone's a little bit different. And uh, here's a group that's not doing as well. And maybe there's another group of guys who are doing just as well or who are doing a lot better. And uh, it's not like an index where people are trading the index or hugging the index. So I think, um, you know, if um, it's possible that the best uh, trend following systems out there didn't trade enough bonds last year. And uh, then some of the uh, and then this year it'll be something different. So it's the choices we make, the seemingly uh, small choices, can have a big, huge impact on performance. And you just have people writing things that unless you're inside and you know what I'm doing, what Dunn's doing, what Moritz is doing, and all the different managers are doing, you really can't make too many big pronouncements and comments. So, And as you, as you say uh, often, Jerry, uh, from, from that research you found that the f- some you know the funds that have had the longest underperformance uh, often are still the ones who have the best long-term performance, right? So you can't. Uh, that's why I also feel that we you know patience and 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 having a true long-term view is is vital, um, you know, in in this in this business. And and I think we're losing that more and more because everything now is instant. Uh, I mean, you have one hour. Or two-hour delivery from Amazon nowadays. I mean, we we can't we can't get things quick enough. No, the pr- it's a lot of pressure. Um, it's uh, you're talking about uh, performance and then running a business. You know, it's uh, always some compromises that you're forced into. Some um, by another uh, Twitter, Twitter tweet I had this week, I kind of liked. It was I think a week ago, Morgan Housel again and. Um, he says, I believe past performance is an indicator of future returns. Oh, wait a second. I believe past performance is not an indicator of future returns. Markets change, history surprises, and performance is cyclical. But it's one of the things I believe least because long-term performance, long-term past performance likely reflects structural facts that can be enduring. I like that, and the more I read it, um, I like this idea that I believe that, but I don't believe it a lot. I thought that was pretty funny. I like to think that I can be nuanced in that way, in an honest way, and not get too crazy. But um, I feel like that that's what I've been trying to say when it comes to uh, history, past performance of markets and what's going on in the markets. And uh, things change, history surprises, uh, markets change, crazy things happen. Trump zero interest rates, uh, all the crazy things that ha- that uh, we benefit from or suffer from all the time, 
And yet we have the fundamental approach of trend following that looks at his history and the entries, the exits, the sample size, the taking small losses and going with trend and paying only attention to price. And that is sort of enduring, but the facts themselves and what it's going to look like, the NAV, uh, where the money's going to come from, it's going to be different. So I think, uh, I think that's powerful. I like it. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't have much to add to that topic. Uh, Moritz, any thoughts? Um, only a few. I, I, <laughs> I like the way he phrased it. Um, I think there are probably a few structural things in the past either that, that are just there and we're picking it up. And uh, um, I used to say that, you know, when people ask me, do you have any forecast of, you know, your system's performance? And of course, no, I don't. You know, it, it, it does whatever it's, uh, whatever it'll do. I, I cannot forecast anything. But if history is a guide, then um, I say I should expect it to make roughly what it has done in the past. Uh, but, you know, with ups and downs and in between, I don't know if that's going to be the case next year or two years or five years. Um, but it is the really the only guide I have. It, it has done this in the past, and I have no reason to expect it to be broken at that point in time. So why not assume that it's going to deliver on, on that again in the future? So maybe I do have a comment on that anyway, that topic, and that is... This is exactly right, Moritz, because, you know, with most predictions, it's easier to predict the short term, right? So when people say, okay, we know what the weather is today, you know, what's the weather going to be tomorrow? They can probably make an educated guess. When it comes to returns, it's the complete opposite. So uh, one year's performance, uh, one week's performance, one month performance uh, from another in our world is very, very hard to tell. Uh, I would say impossible to tell. But once we start looking at our rolling 10-year returns or rolling 20-year returns or even 30-year returns, they become incredibly stable. And as you say, it gives us an expect expectation of a much narrower range. This is not just, by the way, uh, our performance. The same would go for equities and, and so on and so forth. Um, so again, back to the point about being long-term, I mean, this is why it's so important because if you invest in, in anything, then you know the returns you're going to see the next one, two, three, four years to some extent is, is somewhat random, right? But once you keep it for, for much longer, I think you will, to a large extent, um, get returns that are not that far away from what they have been historically. Yeah, when, uh, when Moritz was talking about you know, the predicting or whatever, I, something popped in my head. I remember this story back in the early 80s, and some somehow a rich guy had asked, like, what do you think is going to happen in the markets? You know, what's going to happen? We're, we're asked that a lot, and uh, what's going to happen, and what do you think is happening? And I just remember thinking, oh, this is going to be interesting, you know. What is he going to say to, uh, what's, what, do you, what do you think is going to happen in the market? It's a totally reasonable question. Um, and his response was basically kind of like mentally going down the list of his positions. You know, whatever was in an uptrend, he was long. Whatever in a downtrend, he was short. So he was like saying, okay, I think cocoa's good because it's, you know, he didn't say it was in an uptrend, but he said, yeah, I think cocoa's great and wheat's going to be great and uh, stocks are good. And then, uh, then he started listing in his short positions, you know, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. I guess that's how he's going to do it. So that's about as, it's about as good as you're going to do, I think. Yeah, absolutely. More tweets, or do you want to get stuck into uh, our questions this uh, this week? It's time for questions. 
it's time for questions we missed of course last week sorry about that guys but we had we had our own questions for andreas uh cleaner who joined us um so let me start out actually one of the questions um one of the questions that came in from keith um and i have seen more than this but this is just one that i picked up on and i think we should start there and and that is what is the name of jerry's bird so i think we need to introduce uh our little fourth um you know companion properly yes her, her name is Petey, so it is a girl but we named her Petey um after a character on dumb and dumber and uh before we kind of figured out kind of figured out that it's probably a girl but uh She's a lot of fun. She's a little cockatiel. She can get kind of loud. She's very quiet now. She may be sleeping, but uh, she's really funny and fun. And we found her outside. She landed on my wife's head when she was walking the dogs, and she brought her inside, and uh, the relationship began a year and a half ago. So she's a lot of fun. She's so she's like, actually a wild bird that came? Kind of, or a neighbor who got tired okay. of her pet bird and, <laughs> and uh, she gave her to us. So I don't know. I'm not sure what happened, but uh, if anybody on my neighborhood asks me about their missing bird, I'm going to deny it. Uh, I'm totally in love with this bird now. She, I've never had a bird before. It sounds crazy, but uh, my children think I'm nuts. But uh, she's a lot of fun, and she's you know a really good pet. She's fun. She likes to. I used to put her away, you know, while we were doing our podcasts, so she couldn't be heard. But so she's very happy now that she doesn't have to be put away somewhere and the little chirping in the background I think uh, at least some people kind of think it's kind of funny yeah well definitely it goes good with the tweets <laughs> <That's right. laughs> she has her own Instagram account so uh, <laughs> she's, she's yeah well she might give you some competition on social media soon yeah. uh, Jerry if you don't yeah. watch out but there we are let's stay with Keith um, he had a, a, a second question um, implementation question what do you do when you have more signals than capital to take all signals should the system be set up trade size to handle a trade in each market can i really trust my backtest if i'm unable to take every single uh, every signal in the future i understand that you guys are trading futures and that the leverage allows you not to use all your available capital but can you offer any help for traders applying a system in equities, non-leveraged accounts? Lastly, if you would decide to add a new market to the system, do you resize the existing trades uh, to accommodate the capital required for the new market? So let, uh, let me start with you guys and, uh, and, and your thoughts on, on um, adding markets and, and how, how best to do it. Um, well, um let me go back to those signals. I think it is extremely important to be able to take the signal and not miss the signal. Um, so you have to, I think, when you design your system, design it in such way that it um, that it is something that you can trade and that the signals that are being produced are signals that you can actually implement in reality. Um, if you cannot do that, then your live performance will be different than what you've tested. And I don't think that's a good starting point. So 
I know it is, you know, you won't be able to trade a trend following futures trading system with, you know, 5,000 US dollars of starting capital. That's just not going to work. Then you need to be doing something else. Maybe invest in a CTA and put your money there. But if, you know, if you have sufficient capital to trade a portfolio of, say, you know, 15 or so markets, maybe 20, then um, design it in such a way that you can take each signal. And, you know, it's not only the capital, it's, it's, you know, how much risk are you going to be taking for each trade? There's, there's different parameters that you can use. Um, you know, uh, where do you put your stops if you're using stops? You know, how much risk are you going to take? That will determine whether you can or cannot take all of the signals. Um, but bottom line is, I think it's important that you are able to take all of them. I yeah, I don't think there's anything more important than taking all the signals and taking them in the same way, in the same size. So fixed universe and a fixed uh, position based upon, you know, your risk uh, formula. But um, but I'm sure that, uh, you know, that I'm not qualified to help you figure out uh, how to do, how to use some of these great tools, techniques, uh, trend and small losses and things like that in, a, in the type of portfolio you're mentioning. But I'm not 100% sure that you can't do it. I just don't know how to do it myself. But certainly from a CTA systematic trend following point of view, I don't think there's anything as important as doing all the trades and doing them all the same way. And even if, and I'm not a fan of saying, um, you know, kind of a, in a routine kind of way, habitual way, uh, well, it's for risk management reasons that I'll take the trade, but at half speed, you know, because I, I don't have enough capital. So, I don't really think it matters what your excuse is. And even though that might be one of the better ones, it's still violating the reasons that you want to do all the trades and do them the same way. So let me uh, tackle the question uh, slightly differently. Um, the way I understood it, uh, Keith, was probably uh, that you were trading equities uh, yourself, uh, not necessarily doing what we do, and you were doing it on a non-leveraged basis. And I would imagine... Uh, depending on account size, of course, but I mean, equities in theory could be traded, I think, to a large extent at very small, uh, if you're doing, you know, buying one stock of something or one share of something, I mean, you, you would get down to pretty small numbers. So I would imagine that unless your universe is, you know, thousands of stocks, I would imagine that you could... Um, uh, you should be able to get your full portfolio on if you're doing that now. If you're trading equities uh, and you don't uh, trade uh, any kind of derivatives, I would imagine also you could have trouble with uh, getting shorts. Uh, so, so, so I, I want to, uh, you know, confirm what what Jerry and Moritz says about the importance of if you're testing a certain system that you need to be able to to trade that. Uh, so I don't know what you really what you're doing with your shorts, but 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 again, uh, we think they're incredibly important, of course. Um, and finally, I would say, um, I would say yes. I mean, if you are if you're adding more markets to your portfolio, I would recalculate what should your new position be, because clearly you shouldn't you shouldn't just um, you know arbitrarily add add new markets. I mean, if if you're adding new markets and you've done your test on what that portfolio should be then maybe all positions might be slightly different. But that's what you want. You want your new system, including those markets, to be implemented so that they match what you have just uh, tested to make that decision. So just adding a little bit on that. 
Um, let's jump to a question on uh, from Neil. Uh, Neil uh, had a question. Uh, if something is going up, let's say XYZ stock is rising for a period of time, uh, is it any more likely to rise in the future? Or is it more likely we just have no idea what will happen and just say, uh, and just, uh, I, I think it should say, stay in if it rises? Or if it's dropping XYZ stock, is it any more likely to keep falling? So, um I think we're now down to the uh, why maybe trend following works. Um, you know the whole case for momentum. Um, let let me just add my two cents on this, uh, Neil. Um, I think the evidence is that if something is going up, it's more likely to continue to go up than down. And I'm sure if you studied uh, different um, people in this. Uh, I guess um, Newton uh, also came to that conclusion that things in motion are more likely to stay in motion. So, so maybe this is a quite a basic principle that that trend followers picked up on, and 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 this is the reason why these things actually um, work. Uh, I don't have a more scientific um, explanation um, right now, but but I think the. The the, the uh, I think you can find lots of evidence that that is probably the case. Now it doesn't mean, of course, that question number two, meaning that just because something is going up, that you know you could also argue we have no idea what's going to happen in the future. I would also agree with that, <laughs> that we don't know. But I'm I'm sure if you did your crunch your analysis, you know, you, the numbers and you looked at daily moves, uh, there is probably more tendency to something that is moving up is more likely to move up. Um, then down the next day, um, but I can't provide you with any evidence uh, uh, offhand, of course. What are your thoughts? I wouldn't uh, guess. I don't really know that I would uh, think that it's more likely to continue. What's complicated about it is it's a 40% win rate. So it's so at least on a lot of the trades, it's 60% chance it's not going to continue. And then it's sort of uh, turned on its head because of the outliers. So it's it's uh, everything is less than fifty percent not likely to occur. But then you get a big huge winner and you make money. So I don't know how that fits in with uh, mo something. You know, things are in motion and they keep going. I'm not sure about that. And then I think that the time to do the trade is when the entry gets hit. And so um, when your breakout occurs, your entry signal gets hit, you must do the trade then. And then um, two years from today, you know, uh, from then, and you're in, you still have your palladium trade on. No, I would not want to do that trade now. But if it's going to continue, it's in motion, it should continue. No, 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 no. I'm, a, I'm only interested in my system. And I'm not sure exactly what else is happening here. But I do know, based upon my back test, that if I follow the system to the T, I, I'm pretty confident I'll make some money. So um, markets are, you know, like Jerry said, mean reverting, I guess, most of the time, 6% of the time. But then there are those massive outliers. But one of the points that I want to make is imagine that I had just designed a new systematic trend-following trading system. And I haven't been trading it last week. I'm going to start trading it tomorrow on Monday. And so 
the way I do it is I would implement the positions that the system currently wants to have on. And one of the positions includes a long position in Palladium. And who am I to say that I'm not going to put that position on? If I'm not putting that position on, even though the signal is there, then I'm violating the system because the system wants to be long of Palladium. If I'm going to overrule it, saying, well, no, 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 because I know better that Palladium has rallied so strongly that it's it's going to come back, then then I'm I'm predicting that, well, I'm doing something that I'm not supposed to be doing. I, I would slightly disagree. And it's not telling you you should be long Palladium. It's telling you you should have gotten long Palladium. Not that you should be long today. And uh, now I think that uh, when you're running a business and uh, you did get long Palladium um, in 2018, and then you have an addition to the account, then I think you should uh, put on the pro rata position in Palladium. So that client, and you've talked to them and they know, and it's kind of common that, uh, you know, this, um, we're going to give you the performance as if, you know, you had this Palladium. And I'm sorry that you got in when you did. It could be a big drawdown. Everyone else will still have a good trailing 12-month return. But you, because we had a lot of trades in the trend that were older, they did sell off and you, you know, you have a drawdown in your investment. Um, but I think that, um, and I think it's a business decision. It sort of defies the back test and it sort of defies, you know, following the system. It's like, how do I want to handle this for client relations point of view? Do I want to throw on all these big trades? We're up 60% for the year and it's all open profit. <laughs> you know, how are we going to do this? And so I think it's sort of outside of the scope of, um, of the system to some degree. Interesting. All right. Um, different uh, views on, on, on that topic. Um, another question we have in from uh, Mike. Um, now, there's a little bit of an intro here. I'm not going to read all of it, but Mike uh, has read some uh, technical analysis books. And, of course, he recognizes that, you know, these were written some time ago and technology has moved on, et cetera, et cetera. But the key question that Mike uh, poses to, to us is, I'm curious about your thoughts on how and why there is divergence uh, in thought between trend followers like us and technical analysts. I mean, what, 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 you know, what are the differences between what we do and what quote unquote technical analysts do? I, yeah, I think it is different. Um, we're really, I mean, my simple mind looks at a breakout, um, not really interested in a pattern of a wedge or a saucer or, you know, any of those um, type of things. They don't really mean that much to me. And, and I'm looking at a portfolio from a statistical point of view, trading many different markets in the same way, um, you know, buying the highs and selling the lows and not being dependent on a chart formation. Um, I, I think it's two different things. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think te technical analysis is 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 quite broad, and some technical uh, analysis styles, uh, in lack of a better word, are very hard to systematize. Um, but but that's not to say that some of them can't, and I I do think that certain patterns could be certainly programmed and. And they can be, uh, you know, as good as, as anything to identify potential trends. So in that sense, I don't 
think there is uh, any difference. I think the reason why trend followers tend to to do um, you know other types of signal generation is that there that it's probably um, easier to some extent to use uh, things like moving averages, breakouts, time series momentum, and that we have found them to work uh, pretty well. So those are my thoughts. Any? I'm not exactly sure what uh, what all encom what um, technical analysis all encompasses, but uh, I would say that it's probably just the difference between uh, system trading, where the entry and the exits are sort of tied together, and then uh, maybe technical analysis is like looking at a chart and saying, okay, that's a top or that's a bottom based upon. Uh, I mean, it could be a breakout, but it, you know, like these other saucers and stuff that they head and shoulders and things like that. So I don't know if it's a back-tested entry, exit, stop loss, systematic, follow these rules. That's what we do. I uh, get nervous when trend following is kind of called technical as it relates to fundamental. So it's technical versus fundamental. So, but I guess I've heard people do that and it's okay. But hardcore technical analysis people are much different than uh, system traders. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, I just noticed another question through the... Um, by the way, if you have a question, then uh, by all means, send it to info at toptradersonplug.com. We are delighted to hear from you. And, and, and it's also a good gauge for us to, um, you know, um, be in tune with what uh, is uh, on, on, on your minds when you listen to our conversations uh, each week. So uh, please keep them coming. I did notice here, and I want to uh, just give a shout out to Michael, who did write in, but actually the question has already been answered because it was, can we introduce um, PD to the world, which we have now done. So uh, thanks for that, Michael. Andrew writes in, and I think I sent this, I think I forwarded this question to you guys because there was... A chart uh, involved you may have uh, seen it otherwise I may have forgotten to do it now uh, Andy is asking about our thoughts on long only FX CFD trading uh, that being do you think it would be benefit it would benefit new traders to use basic trend for following identification system like um, and then he shows a chart uh, and only focus on the long side now um, before you guys jump in, um, I just wanted to pose one question to you, Andy, and that is, when you talk about FX, I mean, foreign exchange by definition is really two markets put together in one. So you either have the dollar and the euro, et cetera, et cetera. So I find it a little bit curious that you would choose a long-only um, strategy on this because clearly uh, this is a different type of market than just a single commodity or single equity. Uh, I truly believe that in FX markets, you, uh, depending on economic activity and blah, 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 that you're going to have uh, moves on both sides of that. So, so um, you know, when you say should you focus on a long-sided trade, that means should you only be long the dollar all the time or long the euro all the time? Um, so my, my view is that that... that and and of course you we've already talked about it this week that no market should have a long only focus um, because there's no evidence that market only goes up. Uh, so that would also include your question about the the ethics side. Um, you do say then you go on to say in my in my opinion given the stricter rules of engagement it would force the trader to be more selective. 
and would cut down on data indicator fatigue again not entirely sure andy i'm sorry um what you mean by that um and exactly what the audience of your proposal uh would be um you know uh, uh, maybe you're just trying to make it more simple only take the long trades but um again from my personal point of view um you know if you want to do systems trading you need to you need to uh, consider all uh, signals, not just the long-sided ones. Any thoughts on your side, guys? Well, yeah, shorts are great. You should do shorts if you can. Uh, I think uh, particularly, maybe it's, uh, um, I would sort of argue that it doesn't make sense not to do the shorts, and certainly I agree with Niels in that uh, a great example of that is uh, only wanting to do long currencies. So that kind of highlights what, practically why you know things can go up and down and why not um, I think it's also a situation where when you do a back test you um, are usually going to see the longs have performed better and yet uh, in order to, to increase your sample size you need to um, not look at those longs separately but add them together with the shorts and say okay my system's average a trade is uh, the combination of all the trades the longs and the shorts and not just the longs and so you should never uh, not want to trade the shorts if it's all humanly possible. Nothing to add here, really. You've mentioned it all. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, we, we were posed a topic by George 10 days ago, 12 days ago, something like that. Um, I've got it here. Do you want to get into that today? I forgot the sure. topic. I forgot the topic too, but all right. Well, <laughs> that's going to be even more fun, especially because Moritz, you actually gave us a very, uh, a very full-length uh, email response, which was very oh. interesting. So I think you, uh, you, you're going to be in for a treat here. So anyway, so this is from George, um, and um, George writes: One thing I've been thinking about lately is how many famous system traders don't really code. You guys discuss. It on the last uh, episode, Larry Hyde talked about hiring the right people for the job in his book, uh, including coders. I read Richard Dennis always hired coders for his systems. Uh, from the grapevine, I'm pretty sure Eckhart isn't a coder. It's a coder, works with a coder. I'm guessing Bill Dunn doesn't code anymore if he ever did. Uh, I'm sure there are other examples. Um, I think there's a common misconception in the business that being a coder is the way uh, to go in finance these days. Learn to code uh, and man, oh man, that's your ticket to fame and fortune as a trader. But reality paints another picture and I think the programmers are somewhat uh, of an, a replaceable commodity. I find it interesting and it makes me wonder what is the skill of the great systematic traders, understanding markets, the ability to convey system logic to coders, fundraising, managing various employees and a business, a vision and the ability to enact that vision, willingness to take risk in the markets, being the figurehead, all of the above. So that was the topic that he brought. I, I think it's a super interesting topic. Um, let me just 
I want to kick it over to you guys, but I just want to say to uh, you, George, that Bill Dunn actually did code back in the day. I mean, he was uh, literally the 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 only employee back in 1974, so he did code. Um, but of course, uh, it's been a little while since he was uh, uh, involved in, in, in Don Capital as a business. Um, so uh, no, he doesn't code anymore. Um, so anyways, good topic. I don't know if that um, introduction, Moritz, um, made you recall some of the points you made. Or maybe you want to make some completely different points today. Who knows? <laughs> no, I'm not going to change uh, to change my mind. But I have to say that... Um, I forwarded George's email to a very good programmer friend of mine to get his opinion on it. His name is also Moritz. So uh, he came back with the response I'm going to touch on in a second. My two cents on this is that, uh, as George was saying at the bottom of his email, it's all of the above and a lot of experience. I don't think that in order to be successful in the markets and be a successful trend-following trader and business manager in that field, that you need to necessarily know how to code. I think it's very important to have a statistical mindset to be not overwhelmed with numbers and you know think in bets and probabilities and you know stay true to that. Um, but you can literally, I mean, the way that we trade, you can prototype all those great ideas in a spreadsheet or in a software such as you know tradestation or multi-charts you know all of that which you know may require you to be a little bit um, knowledgeable about coding but it's it's something different than being a full-fledged c-sharp c++ or python programmer so don't think that's a necessity now what my good friends Moret said was well um, the coders may become so strong that, you know, they may at some point may replace the hedge fund managers because, you know, they just figure it all out and they put it all down in numbers. Um, and then the hedge fund managers become a commodity and no longer the coders. Um, so I don't know. I guess the truth is somewhere in the middle. If um, there's, there's more to trading than just being a good coder. You know, if, if, if you are a good coder, that does not mean that you have the ability to follow a system. It doesn't mean that you can come up with a good trend-following trading system. Uh, it doesn't mean that you know anything about risk. You may be coding complete garbage. So it is, as we've said so many times, it is a process, it is a journey. Nobody becomes this trend-following trader overnight. It's a lot of trial and error, uh, or you have to be taught and educated. Uh, by people who know what they're doing and, and then use that knowledge. So, great topic, but really my bottom line is uh, it's it's an asset. It's it's a valuable asset if you can code, no doubt about it. Um, is it a key firm requirement? No, it's not. I like that last couple sentences. I agree with all of that. So, uh, I think that... If you're young or if you're not that young, but you want to get involved with uh, hedge funds or um, managing money or CTAs, you know, do what it takes to get in there and learn from smart people and get a job and, and maybe coding is what you want to do. Uh, and you, you can maybe impress someone. Um, and then um, I've known people who were good thinkers, math and um, logic and 
taught themselves to code on the on the job, solve their problems. Uh, if they were in the research department or in the strategy and model building department, they taught themselves how to code. I mean, so that's what you want to have a brain that says, hey, how do I get to the next level? How do I solve some problems, my problems? I have a, so, some things I need to come up with. How am I going to do that? So if you can figure out a way to hand it off to your a friend who can code for you or figure out how to code yourself, whatever, just, you know, it's solving problems, getting things done. And if you're going to, if you're talking about moving up and uh, leading a firm and being a leader and, the, you know, um, having a good background and understanding in depth, uh, maybe coding, and because that's going to be a big part of the people that you may end up leading. That's going to be an edge for you. Uh, I think it's, you know, it's kind of like a football. I mean, you have a good head coach. Was uh, was he the best assistant? Was he great at coaching the tight ends? I mean, I don't know. Is that what it takes? Probably not. Uh, he was in the right place at the right time. He was given an opportunity. And it, his leadership skills and um, whatever took over and he became a good head coach. But it's uh, kind of probably two different things. So it's, I don't know, I, it's hard to figure out uh, marketing and management and risk control. It's, I don't know, it's, it's a hard, hard subject. But I certainly would not want to be the one to downplay the importance of um, coders and people with those kind of skills, because certainly um, those guys are taking away jobs from people like me I got in at a good time and a, had a good career at a time where um, I didn't need to be a coder, but probably now it's probably better to have that skill with lots of other ones as well. Yeah, I mean, I think you probably, um, between the two of you, have said, uh, said all that needs to be said. I think, uh, um, you know, the whole point about, you know, understanding markets and, and, and actually come up with a, a robust strategy to begin with um, uh, is, is super important in understanding uh, the risk management side and, and, and all of those things. And clearly in the early days when, when you're doing it on your own, you know, having in-house skills, so to speak, or your own skills uh, in the quote-unquote coding uh, world uh, can be useful, but it's definitely not a requirement. It's interesting, actually, we've discussed the Jim Simon story, and I know he was obviously very accomplished uh, in, in all of these things, but I think it's interesting to know that uh, the, the people that made Renaissance Technologies successful wasn't really his own coding or ideas. It was actually finding the right people to uh, to work with, I think, that made that uh, so uh, successful. So I think both things can be can be important uh, for sure. Oh, that's a that's a good story, because remember, he said, um, let's cut back. You know, he's in a room with people with different talents and maybe they're all great at math or coding or maybe not. And then he he was in that room and he says, uh, we need to trade smaller. We need to get rid of positions and, and uh, survive and protect our capital. And the other two were like, no, we shouldn't do that. <laughs> right. Where does that come from? I mean, uh, that's in, inside of him. It's who he was. And so, I mean, I don't, that's the mystery of it all. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, you can be a good coder, right? And you can even come up with a good uh, system and you can have a great back test and all of those things. But as Moritz says, I mean, if, if you don't have the ability, your, the human ability to follow the system, it's not worth a lot, right? You can code as much as you want. So, I mean, I think it's 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 a uh, quite a unique skill set, um, after all, uh, that is required. Um, and often, what what I've seen and noticed is that 
those firms who become successful, uh, yeah, there's always a key man in the beginning, but often these people uh, recognize that there are certain parts of the business that they may not be best at, and then they hire uh, to to uh, to solve those uh, challenges. Um, and, and clearly, when you look at a CTA business today, where there are so many facets uh, that you need to be on top of and, and good at and successful at, um, it is a diverse skill set uh, that needs uh, that is required for sure. Some good questions this week. Thanks for sending them in. And uh, as mentioned earlier, um, info at toptradersonplug.com is where you should send all of your questions and we'll do our very best to uh, answer them. As you've already uh, heard uh, so far this month, uh, CTAs are doing fine. These numbers are as of Thursday evening. Uh, I think Friday was okay as well for CTAs. Um, but the beta 50 is up 1.58% uh, for the month of Jan and therefore uh, the year. SockGen CTA index up 209. The SockGen trend index up 2.7%. The SockGen short-term traders index is flat for the month so far. And the bridge alternatives index is up 1.88%. Um, any final thoughts? It's been a long episode today. So um, is there anything left in the tank at this stage? Not mine. Running on empty, but <laughs> looking forward to next weekend. Okay, cool. Um, and by the way, let me just mention uh, to those of you who uh, in the past uh, grabbed one of the, uh, what I call the ultimate guide to uh, the best investment books. Um, I have updated that guide. Uh, you can get it on the website, toptradersonplug.com. And there is now more than 100 great books uh, that you should go and check out and uh, uh, as part of your journey. On that note, let's wrap up this week's conversation. We hope that you've enjoyed it. And if you haven't already done so or already, please share the podcast and tell all of your friends that it's the best podcast in the world. You know that we are watching you, of course, from Jerry Moritz and me. Thanks so much for spending part of your day with us. We're grateful for your support and we can't wait to be back next week. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.